Well, I'm not going to say that you have yet to hear about this band because you probably have heard about Earshot. They've got some new music out and uh, you've heard their music in NHL, um, the Queen of the Dam movie featuring Aaliyah and uh, many other places. How's it going? Well, he's the front man of Earshot. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. And uh, you're still rocking the long hair or no? I am. It's getting, uh, I was just thinking the other day, like, maybe I need to get a little trim. It's, I'm starting to look like, uh, like Grand Funk Railroad or something. Uh, wow. We always change well. appearances and we resemble our idols as we get older. Um, <laughs> this is true. This is true. Very, very true. I, I, and I've always had long hair. I mean, there was a few years where I didn't. Um, but I guess I just have always identified with the, uh, the hippie coalition, you know. Hey, you know what? I look like Enrique Iglesias now, but, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I might need a facelift in, in quite some time. In the well, future. you know what? Uh, Enrique Iglesias, man, he, he gets all the ladies. So I don't know if that's such a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing for me. It's a bad thing for my wife. I, you know, <laughs> could call, she's a, she's a boxer, man. She's Spanish. She's she's furious. So there you go. Um, there you go. We'll just say if they want to take me, they have to go through her first. Um, <laughs> so this show's called Meet Me for Coffee. Um, it's about conversations with musicians and people in entertainment. Uh, yeah. I do drink coffee a lot. I drink my coffee black. How do you take your coffee? Do you drink coffee, Will? Uh, so I drink coffee, not regularly. Uh, when I do, I prefer espresso coffee drinks. So I have a little espresso machine um, that I'll fire up from time to time, usually maybe a couple times a week. Um, you know, I like I like chocolate, caramel, mocha, latte type thing. So, uh, but I'm not a regular coffee drinker. I used to I used to actually sell coffee back before I had a record deal. I was general manager of a few different coffee houses, um, most notably Seattle's Best Coffee and Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, which I'm not sure where you're at, where you're located, but... Um, In Canada. Yeah, so you don't have them up there. Um, but they're on the West Coast here in the United States, and that's what I did, you know, just before I signed my first record deal with Warner Brothers. So let's talk about leading up to that. 1999, you guys formed the band Earshot. Um, Earshot, like, where did that name come from? Uh, what a what was it? What if it wasn't Earshot? What would the name be? Or is were there any other ideas? So back in. I think it was 2000, 99 or 2000. Uh, we were very eager to get out and play shows. Some of us more than others, but uh, we had went ahead and told the promoter locally that we were ready to do a show. And so he went ahead and booked us without asking us what the name was or really how many songs we had, which we only had, I think, I think we only had like four songs. So, um, booked this and I got a message a few weeks before the show asking what the name of the band was because he was trying to, they were trying to take ads out, local ads to, to promote the show and we didn't have a name. So we were the, 
four of us at the time it wasn't a five piece yet were scrambling trying to figure out a name and i happened to be writing lyrics for i think it was headstrong actually and i was trying to find a word another word for a word that i was thinking and so i broke out of the source and because i had it out i started just kind of flipping through it to find something that might inspire a name and i had decided that i wanted to find or have a name that had something to do with sound so i looked up sound in the thesaurus and what came up very first word i believe in this book was earshot so it was synonymous with sound and and that's what we rolled with at least for that show and then there were of course talks um that were short-lived about changing the name i think one of the names the drummer came up with was high h-i-g-h which i was like that's stupid like but not that not that earshot's like any you know like you know cerebral name by any means but high was like just because he was a big pothead so i think that's why he gravitated toward that but um so that's that's the big story about how earshot came came to be the name and and then and then you guys signed a record deal in uh, 2001 with warner brothers yes Yes. i'm assuming after you know you guys initially started playing things got heated pretty fast and people actually they heard you sing you were a very versatile singer you're amazing um people wanted you on their record label because at that time you had alien ant farm you had glass jaw and uh, you guys have played shows with those uh those bands um signing your first record deal how did that feel well first off thank you for the compliment much appreciated um you know we started by our second show we had label interest we had label interest from at the time roadrunner records and the very first person to come to one of our shows was still a very good friend of mine um seth benzer aka shifty from the band crazy town which i'm sure you know, and maybe some of your followers familiar with, but um, he actually, and the reason how I know him or met him was because he was a regular at the coffee shop that I managed here in LA. And he came in every day and cool. he realized that I was in a band and he came to a show He and he loved it. And he had just signed uh, with Columbia, I believe it was at the time. And he came in the next day after being at our show and said, you need to have a record deal. You're, you're amazing. You're great. And so, um, we started doing showcases by our second show. We had already labels. I remember we had a bunch of, we had Dino Cesaris from fear factory. Uh, he was sort of trying to get us, move us over to Roadrunner at the time. Cause that's where, that's where fear factory was, was signed to. We had, uh, Jay Gordon, who came out, who I think he was signed to Reprise, which is where we originally had signed before he moved to Warner Brothers. And it was really weird. It was surreal because we had all of these labels, pretty much every single label we were doing showcases for after just two shows. And 
and it was really kind of a, a whirlwind and we had been told that we were going to get offers from every showcase and many of them did they were slow to go like it, when i mean slow i'm talking like a couple of months in some cases before we'd see an offer and um that's better than some bands <laughs> they never see an offer so obviously a different true time. you know you guys true. are really lucky well except for for me at least um because we were showcasing so much and having to fly in some cases to meet with some labels I was forced by my boss to either keep my job or move on and do this. So I opted to take my chances and roll the dice on this. Um, and the problem with that is I got really, really behind financially after about seven or eight months and we still had no record deal. Um, we had, again, we had labels that sent a couple offers. We didn't really like them. There were some that, you know, were coming and they were coming, but they they hadn't come yet. And really, <clears throat> I think I think it was coincidental. But Fred Durst had called me at home, which I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was somebody trying to prank me, but it was in fact Fred Durst, and he had heard um, our little two song demo that we had. And I went and I met with them over at his office, and we sat for three or four hours and. We listened to the new Deftones White Pony album at the time. And and he actually put in an offer quick. And right when he put that offer in is when we got the offer from Warner Brothers. And the deal from the offer from Warner Brothers was significantly better financially and other things about it. So I had to call Fred back and let him know that that's what we were going to do. And, and uh, but the funny part is is i literally at the time was like three months behind on my rent i think the electricity at the time had been cut off for like a month we were me and my girlfriend at the time were like living by candlelight and the we had no cable obviously and there was a knock at the door when i got the phone call that the deal was done and signed and that there'd be money in our in our accounts in the next couple of days and as i was getting that phone call there was a knock at the door it was the gas company and they were either I had to pay them or they were shutting that off too. So it, it was just such a weird day. I'll never forget that day. It was just like, man, what could go worse? We're gonna get thrown out in the street probably pretty soon if something doesn't materialize. But it it did in the eleventh hour, and uh, it was just really crazy how it all went down and how long the process took. But uh, it definitely, it definitely wasn't like yeah, we want to sign your band and we had an offer, you know, in the next week. I mean, it literally took all told, I think it was about 10 or 11 months from the, from the first label that we met with and the first showcases that we did before we finally reached an agreement and signed. So it was a long process. And the, and the lights went back on in your house, which is. They did. Everything fantastic. went back on. And, yeah. And how was the lifestyle after signing your record record deal? Like, well, what's it like? You know, what's it like being on a record, on a record label that has the money to push you? Well, it was, it was especially nice for us because it was the head of the label that, that signed us. And uh, he really liked and, and believed in the band so much that he also wanted to produce our first album, which he did, David Kahn. 
Um, you know, it, I, it to me felt like it was a proud moment, obviously, but I grew up in the music industry. My, my father is a, and still is a professional musician. So I grew up in that environment. So to me, I knew this really signaled where the hard work was really going to begin. And, um, but what I, what I didn't know was how political, you know, the business really is of music. And so, um, you know, we were fortunate enough, you know, to be able to surround ourselves with a good team of people that helped us navigate that, but it's, it's really, really tough. And, and it was a big learning curve to be honest for me. And, it, and I had to learn on the fly and, you learn really quick that you can't rely on other people to do everything for you. You have to have your head in the game at all times. Otherwise, you know, the stories that I'm sure you've heard a million times happen. And even then it can, they can still happen. So it, that's, that's what it was for me. It was exciting, but it was also kind of, kind of mind racking at the same time. And it also probably had its challenges. Is there like um, money fronted for you guys? Like obviously there's, some type of financial um you know they give you the money and then after that you have to pay it back how does that all work so typically and every record deals different but uh in terms of percentages and numbers and how that gets paid back but but typically how it works is um they commit to a budget for various things, making the record, uh, making videos, how much they're going to spend in promotions, how much they're going to spend in tour support, how much they're going to spend for whatever equipment, all that stuff is, is negotiated on the front end when, when you're doing the contracts. Um, and basically how it works is, uh, you get a small percentage for every record sold and they keep the lion's share. Um, and, I mean, if I if I explained to you the the real nitty gritty of the details, you'd you'd be shocked at how these record deals really work, and how clever they are. You know, on the record company side, how clever these contracts were really structured. You know, in their favor. Um, but of course, of course, it's all if, it's all one almost. You think that you're signing something fantastic, which you might be, but a lot of the bigger artists out there they always try and get out of their own their own record contract and uh, do it on their own terms right right and we got a, actually a pretty good deal for a band that nobody even heard of yet um but that's testament to how much you know the label really believed in us or david Kahn really believed in us um you know it, they didn't skimp too much on us but you know with for record labels um even though they commit all this money, I mean, it's not like artists aren't on the hook for that money if if they don't make their money back and, and they let go of the band. So it's not like you have debt that follows you around um, in the event that that happens. They they eat it and they write it off and it goes down as a loss in those situations. So, um, so that's not the issue that, you know, the thing that you hope for um is that you have the continued support of the entire label 
all the way through the cycle of your record. That's really the challenge is keeping everybody on the same page and focused. Um, because it's, it's really easy, you know, for different people in different departments to get distracted and sidetracked by all the other artists that they also have to promote. So it's, it's, it's a really delicate balancing act that, that happens each time and, and can really, you know, make or break a record, quite honestly. Oh, I fully agree with you. You've probably met some very unique people along the way. Who are some of the most interesting musicians that have in, like engraved a memory or uh, an event or, you know, something in your mind that you've met along the way? Paul McCartney. Cool. Let's talk about that. He, um, so David Kahn, who again was the head of our label who signed us and was also producing our album. He was simultaneously producing a Paul McCartney solo record. And so the schedule was by day, he was working on Paul's album. And then at night he'd go, you know, to the next studio over and we'd work on earshot. Um, so this, on this particular day, I think, in, yeah, it was one of the, it was, in one of the other, the mixing room at this studio, which was over at Henson um, here in Los Angeles. Um, Bob Rock was uh, working on a mix or a remaster for a cult record. And so David had mentioned to him that, that the cult was next door and Bob Rock. And he, and so Paul says to David, he goes, you mean, you mean that, the the lad from the cult, the band the cult. He's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, wow. He goes, I'm a huge fan of the cult. He goes, do you think, do you think he'd be bothered if I if I met him? He goes, well, I'll call over. I don't know, I don't know if he's there or not today. But so he calls over, and Bob Rock's like, of course, he's not here today, but I'll call him, and you know, he can come down tomorrow. Great. So Paul is like giddy and all excited. Oh my god, this is so great. So the next day. Paul McCartney shows up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with a Sonic Temple t-shirt on, ready to meet Ian Asbury. That was a classic story that I'll never forget. <laughs> These experiences are one of a kind. Are you going to ever write like a, a biography, a memoir, after you're all set and done, man, or what? You know, I, I, sometimes I feel like I would be the only one interested in all these stories that I have. Um, but then again, I've, I've been entertaining my friends for years with, with stories. And, you know, they kind of just pop in my head because there's been so many. They just pop into my head and something will remind me of, of a story and then and I remember them. But um, someone has mentioned that before you should write a book. I just go, well, maybe. It's not really on my radar, but... Yeah, you we'll might, see. you might, you might feel like it one day. It seems like a big task, um, a, a huge, huge commitment is being in a band. Um, and I know, yeah, you know, over the course of the years, you know, being able to play in a band with my friends or uh, with others and stuff like that, it's hard to keep it together. 
Um, yeah. I know you guys don't have like frequent releases. Um, you have a, a newer song that came out, You and I. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about the status of Earshot right now. Um, you guys ready to do this full time once again or just singles? So we're independent now. We put we put everything out on our own. We we fund our own recordings. We don't even we don't do crowdsourcing or any cool. of that stuff. I, I love mean, that. Um, we we you know just sort of put our money where our mouth is and and go for it. Um, you know, I've always in the band. I've always been the the business figure. And that's because, as I said earlier, I grew up in this business. So there's a lot of it that I already understood coming in. And so I've, you know, since I became a, a bona fide professional in the industry, I've since then, I've always kept up on what's happening in the business and what the trends are and what numbers and all these other things that probably shouldn't matter (laughs) to me, but I've always been fascinated with numbers um, in that regard. And the one thing that I've, I've seen over the years and, and continues to, and I think we're pretty much all the way there is that people don't listen to music in the same way that they used to anymore. As you know, it's all streaming. There are, you know, tens of millions of songs out there, tens of thousands of them coming out each day. It's even hard for our fans that want to hear our music. It's hard for them to even find our music because there's so much out there coming at them. And I've found that putting out a whole collection of music of 10 or 14 songs, what happens is, is people just don't have the capacity to stay with an album that long anymore because there's other things that they want to listen to. So you're really fortunate if you get someone to even to listen to one of your songs on an album, if you put out an album now. Um, it just doesn't make sense to, to me anyway, to put out, a bunch of songs that most of them are going to get ignored. And then there's going to be the one or two songs that, you know, people will save or buy or add to their playlist. So to me, it make it made more sense to do what we're doing now, which is let's put out a song or two at a time and really allow the song to be focused on and really let the song tell its story because each story is unique and that's why it's important you know to artists for people to listen to all the songs they put out because there's a story there so it's it just see it makes more sense given where listeners are at these days which is on spotify youtube apple music and the various other streaming platforms out there that's what's happening so it just doesn't make sense to me and that could all change and if it does then we'll we'll pivot to that but i think when i watch the the pop genre and the hip-hop genre, i mean that's what they've been doing for yeah. a long time they've, they've been a singles driven market and it works and you can focus and be more focused on how you 
bring that song to fans, you know, by telling them the story and allowing them an opportunity to, to connect with the song instead of overloading them with just a bunch of music. And that at the end of the day is what it is to them. It's just a bunch of music. And they it's, have to it's sift It's a very through. smart approach that you guys are going for. Um, let, let, let's talk about like uh, what the future holds for your shot. Are you guys planning on maybe playing a few shows here and there? Um, supporting this single or whatever else is about to drop? Is there any more singles in the works? Yeah. So what we've decided to do was we're going to release a new track or tracks every one to two months at a maximum, right? So, and what that does and what makes that challenging and exciting, you know, for us and hopefully for our fans as well is that we're putting out music in more real time, right? So these aren't songs that, you know, that when typically when we were on a label, you know, we'd spend three to six months writing them and then we'd spend another, you know, three to six months recording it. And then you sit another six months until they schedule your album to come out. And all told it's almost two years old by the time a record comes out and this, this is more in real time. So when people hear these songs, it's literally pretty much where we're at at this point in time in the world. And I think there's something really cool about that, at least for me as an artist. And, you know, hopefully, you know, fans will appreciate that as well. But to answer your other question in terms of touring, we don't have anything on the books at the moment. We have some possibilities of, of doing a few shows, but not a, not an extensive tour is in the works yet, maybe in the fall, maybe, but I think in the worst, you know, we'll probably start winding things up in the spring of next year at the latest. Well, thanks for the update. Will. uh, earshot has their single you and I and tongue tied as well up on uh, your streaming platform. Uh, Can they purchase these singles as well? You can, yep. There, uh, I believe that uh, at least on iTunes, I know that uh, it, there is an option to purchase them as well. And we'll probably, at some point here pretty soon, we'll probably you know make it available for people to purchase from our our official website too, uh, which people can find that at earshotband.com. Um, so yes, to answer your question. Awesome. Well, thank you, Will. You heard from the band Earshot, the frontman Will Martin on Meet Me for Coffee. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Meetmeforcoffee.co is the website. There you can find this podcast amongst others with Cool and the Gang, Anthrax, and more. Thanks a lot, man. Let's meet for coffee once again. I'm into it. And thanks again for uh, having me. Take care. You too.